TED Audio Collective. Hey, it's Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. Now more than ever, we're reminded how interconnected we are as human beings living on this planet. What if the coronavirus pandemic is just a precursor to the kind of crises we'll face as climate change accelerates? What should we do now to preserve humanity and the dignity of life on this planet? Environmental activist Christine Tompkins is a pioneer in this area. She's performed a kind of capitalism jujitsu, as she calls it, where she used her success in private business to do public and planetary good. She'll talk about it, and it's the kind of thinking we could all use more of in this moment. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here to keep a pulse on environmental trends. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in electric vehicles, renewable energy, water sustainability, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas you believe in. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme, as is, or customized to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Global Fabric, brought to you by BT. Available in over 200 countries and direct high bandwidth connectivity to over 700 data centers worldwide, Global Fabric provides a zero trust journey, DDoS detection, and mitigation embedded as standard, so you can secure your complex multi-cloud ecosystem without impacting performance. Baseline monitor and manage your carbon footprint across your entire ecosystem with our dedicated carbon network dashboard. Plus, the Global Fabric network is powered by one. 100% renewable energy. Master the multi-cloud with Global Fabric. Future-proof and secure your connectivity on a network that evolves with you. To learn how BT's Global Fabric can transform your organization's connectivity, head to bt.com slash global fabric. My siblings and I grew up on our great-grandfather's farm in California. It was a landscape of our family and our home when it was clear that nobody in our generation wanted to take on the heavy burden of ranching, the ranch was sold to a neighbor. The anchor of our lives was cut and we felt adrift in the absence of that land. For the first time, I came to understand that something valuable can be best understood not by its presence, but by its absence. It was impossible to know then just how powerful the absence of those things we love would have an impact far into my future. For 23 years, my working life was with Yvonne Chouinard. I started when he was designing and manufacturing technical rock and ice climbing equipment in a tin shed near the railroad tracks in Ventura. And when Yvonne decided to start making clothes for climbers and call this business Patagonia, I became one of the first six employees, later becoming CEO and helping build a company where creating the best products and doing good by the world was more than just a tagline. Doug Tompkins, who would become my husband years later, was an old friend and climbing companion of Yvonne's and also an entrepreneur. He co-founded the North Face and Esprit Company all three of these businesses 
were created by people who had grown up through the 60s, shaped by the civil rights, anti-war, feminist, and peace movements. And those values were picked up in those years and carried throughout the values of these companies. By the end of the 1980s, Doug decided to leave business altogether and commit the last third of his life to what he called paying his rent for living on the planet. At nearly the same time, when I hit 40, I was ready to do something completely new with my life. The day after retiring from the Patagonia company, I flew 6,000 miles to Patagonia the place and joined Doug as he started what was the first conservation project of that third of his life. There we were, refugees from the corporate world, holed up in a cabin on the coast in southern Chile, surrounded by primeval rainforest where alerce trees can live for thousands of years. We were in the middle of a great wilderness that forms one of the only two gaps in the Pan American Highway between Fairbanks, Alaska and Cape Horn. A radical change to our daily lives spurred on as we had begun to recognize how beauty and diversity were being destroyed pretty much everywhere. The last wild protected places on earth were still wild mostly because the relentless front lines of development simply hadn't arrived there yet. Doug and I were in one of the most remote parts on earth and still around the edges of Pumaline Park, our first conservation effort Industrial aquaculture was growing like a malignancy. Before too long, other threats arrived to the Patagonia region. Gold mining, dam projects on pristine rivers, and other growing conflicts. The vibration of stampeding economic growth worldwide could be heard even in the highest latitudes of the Southern Cone. I know that progress is viewed generally in very positive terms, as some sort of hopeful evolution. But from where we sat, we saw the dark side of industrial growth. And when industrial worldviews are applied to natural systems that support all life, we begin to treat the earth as a factory that produces all the things that we think we need. As we're all painfully aware, the consequences of that worldview are destructive to human welfare, our climate systems, and to wildlife. Doug called it the price of progress. That's how we saw things, and we wanted to be a part of the resistance pushing up against all of those trends. The idea of buying private land and then donating it to create national parks isn't really new. Anyone who's ever enjoyed the views of Teton National Park in Wyoming or camped in Arcadia National Park in Maine has benefited from this big idea. Through our family foundation, we began to acquire wildlife habitat in Chile and Argentina. Being believers in conservation biology, we were going for big, wild, and connected. Areas that were pristine in some cases, and others that would need time to heal, that needed to be rewild. Eventually, we bought more than two million acres from willing sellers, assembling them into privately managed protected areas while building park infrastructure as campgrounds and trails for future use by the general public. All were welcome. 
Our goal was to donate all of this land in the form of new national parks. You might describe this as a kind of capitalist jujitsu move. We deployed private wealth from our business lives and deployed it to protect nature from being devoured by the hand of the global economy. It sounded good, but in the early 90s in Chile, where wildlands philanthropy, which is what we called it, was completely unknown, we faced tremendous suspicion and from many quarters, downright hostility. Over time, largely by doing what we said we were doing, we began to win people over. Over the last 27 years, we've permanently protected nearly 15 million acres of temperate rainforest, Patagonian steppe grasslands, coastal areas, freshwater wetlands, and created 13 new national parks, all comprised of our land donations and federal lands adjoining those territories. After Doug's death following a kayaking accident four years ago, the power of absence hit home again. But we at Tompkins Conservation leaned in to our loss and accelerated our efforts. Among them in 2018, creating new marine national parks covering roughly 25 million acres in the Southern Atlantic Ocean. No commercial fishing or extraction of any kind. In 2019, we finalized the largest private land gift in history when our last million acres of conservation land in Chile passed to the government a public-private partnership that created five new national parks and expanded three others. This ended up being an area larger than Switzerland. All of our projects are the results of partnerships, first and foremost with the governments of Chile and Argentina. And this requires leadership who understands the value of protecting the jewels of their countries, not just for today, but long into the future. Partnerships with like-minded conservation philanthropists as well played a role in everything we've done. 15 years ago, we asked ourselves, beyond protecting landscape, what do we really have to do to create fully functioning ecosystems? And we began to ask ourselves, wherever we were working, who's missing? What species had disappeared? Or whose numbers were low and fragile? We also had to ask, how do we eliminate the very reason that these species went extinct in the first place? What seems so obvious now was a complete thunderbolt for us. And it changed the nature of everything we do completely. Unless all the members of the community are present and flourishing, it's impossible for us to leave behind fully functioning ecosystems. Since then, we've successfully reintroduced several native species to the Iwera wetlands. Giant anteaters, pampas deer, peccaries, and finally, one of the most difficult, the green-winged macaws, who've gone missing for over a hundred years in that ecosystem. And today they're back, flying free, dispensing seeds, playing out their lives as they should be.
The capstone of these efforts in Iwara is to return the apex carnivores to their rightful place. Jaguars on the land, giant otters in the water. Several years of trial and error produced young cubs who will be released for the first time in over half a century into Iwara wetlands. And now the 1.7 million acre Iwara Park will provide enough space for recovering jaguar populations with low risk of conflict with neighboring ranchers. Our rewilding projects in Chile are gaining ground on low numbers of several key species in the Patagonia region. The Wemel deer that is truly nearly extinct, the lesser reyes, and building the puma and fox populations back up. You know, the power of the absent can't help us if it just leads to nostalgia or despair. To the contrary, it's only useful if it motivates us toward working to bring back what's gone missing. Of course, the first step in rewilding is to be able to imagine that it's possible in the first place, that wildlife abundance recorded in journals aren't just stories from some old dusty books. Can you imagine that? Do you believe the world could be more beautiful, more equitable? I do, because I've seen it. Here's an example. When we purchased one of the largest ranches in Chilean Patagonia in 2004, for a century, this land had been overgrazed by livestock, like most grasslands around the world. Soil erosion was rampant. Hundreds of miles of fencing kept wildlife and its flow corralled, and that was with the little wildlife that was left. The local mountain lions and foxes had been persecuted for decades, leaving their numbers very low. Today, those lands are the 763,000-acre Patagonia National Park, and Arcelio, the former gaucho whose job was to first find and kill mountain lions in years past, today is the head tracker for the park's wildlife team, and his story captures the imagination of people around the world. What is possible? I share these thoughts with you, not for self-congratulations, but to make a simple point and propose an urgent challenge. If the question is survival, survival of life's diversity and human dignity and healthy human communities, then the answer must include rewilding the earth as much and as quickly as possible. Everyone has a role to play in this but especially those of us with privilege, with political power, wealth, where, let's face it, for better or for worse, that's where the chess game of our future is played out. And this gets to the core of the question. Are we prepared to do what it takes to change the end of this story? Having watched young people from around the world rising up and going out into the streets to remind us of our culpability and chastising us for our inaction, 
are the ones who really inspire me. I know, you've heard all of this before, but if there was ever a moment to awaken to the reality that everything is connected to everything else, it's right now. Every human life is affected by the actions of every other human life around the globe, and the fate of humanity is tied to the health of the planet. We have a common destiny. We can flourish or we can suffer, but we're going to be doing it together. So here's the truth. We're so far past the point when individual action is an elective. In my opinion, it's a moral imperative that every single one of us steps up to reimagine our place in the circle of life. Not in the center, but as part of the whole. We need to remember that what we do reflects who we choose to be. Let's create a civilization that honors the intrinsic value of all life. No matter who you are, no matter what you have to work with, get out of bed every single morning and do something that has nothing to do with yourself, but rather having everything to do with those things you love, with those things you know to be true. Be someone who imagines human progress to be something that moves us toward wholeness, toward health, toward human dignity, and always and forever wild beauty. Thank you. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com.